Today we begin our Advent series looking at the first chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, the next four Sundays. Um, And considering what the Father has to say about the Son, that's the the point of Hebrews 1, uh, and the way the author does that is actually by quoting um, a handful of Old Testament texts. We'll actually begin each uh, week looking at one of those quoted passages in Hebrews 2. This week it's Psalm 2, so we'll read Psalm 2 first. It's page 448 in the Bible in front of you if you'd like to use that. And then we'll turn over to the New Testament for Hebrews chapter 1. Psalm 2. This is the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now turning to Hebrews chapter 1. Page 1001 in the Pew Bible, we'll read the first five verses for our reflection today. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe By the word of his power, after making purification for his sins, he sat for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be like I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. As far as the reading of God's holy word, uh, parents love to talk about their children and to share uh, about their achievements and their talents, to tell stories and to show pictures. And we get that, um, especially if we ourselves are parents, we get that to, to a degree. But have you never encountered somebody who perhaps brings you to the point of near nausea with their fanatical obsession over their children. Um, 
Do you know somebody who is just constantly listing off accolades, telling you how so-and-so is just the brightest and the best and, and the greatest? And that can maybe get under our skin. Why does that irritate us when we encounter someone like that? Why does that annoy us? I think it's because we know deep down it's not true. This person's kid isn't the greatest and the best. Yeah, that's wonderful. Little Jimmy knows his ABCs. We're thinking, you know, as we smile, that's wonderful. He knows his ABCs. And in our heads, we're thinking, but he still eats his boogers. Like, come on, you know, have a dose of reality here. Your kid is pretty good, but maybe not all that. And, of course, the older the child, the greater the accomplishments, but also the greater the falls and foibles. At my high school graduation, the valedictorian walked across the stage to receive that, that, um, that honor. And just mere weeks earlier, he was getting his uh, stomach pumped while passed out drunk at a party. And, in fact, somehow his friends were able to keep from his parents. And so you have this kid who is getting the highest honor at the high school and his parents just gushing about how great he is without really knowing um, some of his um, lesser accomplishments. So we just want a dose of realism, right? Yeah, your kid's great, but they're just not everything. Uh, That's what gets under our skin. But here's the question. What if there was a child who was really that great? Who was all that? What if there was a child who was indeed the brightest and the best and the greatest? Well, in that case, not only should we not be annoyed when the parent talks about them, we should kind of lean in and want to hear what the parent has to say about them. We want to know more about this amazing child. We want to take in all the information that we can. We should want to know everything that we can possibly know. But more than knowing about this child, we should want to know this child if they really are the greatest and the best. Well, that's what we find in Hebrews chapter 1. Here, in this first chapter, the author says, this is what God has to say about his son. And God has some amazing things to say about his son. And he points to seven different Old Testament passages. If you look at the chapter there, most Bibles will have those Old Testament passages indented. So you see that there's seven different places where there's a quotation there, or an indentation. Those are all Old Testament texts, almost entirely coming from the Psalms. And so to an audience of Jewish believers, that's why the book is called Hebrews. These are people who who have Hebrew heritage and background. The, The author of this epistle takes their beloved Old Testament, especially their favorite book, the Psalms, And he shows them that God has actually been talking about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in some very familiar passages. And he's been talking about how much he loves him, how great he thinks he is. And we should share that estimation. We should share with the father his view of the son. Because being God of God, light of light, very God of very God, Jesus really is the greatest and the best. There is nothing too magnificent or too marvelous that could ever be said about Jesus. Never. You will never find words that are too superlative for Christ. There are no words too lofty, too grand, too spectacular, too honorary that could be attributed to Jesus because he is worthy of all. He's worthy of all our attention. He's worthy of all our time and all our praise. I want you to know today that your soul will only find its satisfaction, the satisfaction that we all long for, you will find that satisfaction when you see Jesus the way God the Father sees Jesus. That's when your soul will be at rest, 
when you admire the son the way the father does. So that's the the point of Hebrews chapter 1. Come to know the son the way the father knows the son. That's the invitation. So what makes him so great? What makes him so great? Well, first, quite simply, it's who he is. That's the first thing, who he is. The author wants us to see that Jesus is the great prophet. He is the high priest. He is the mighty king. And that's in the first four, uh, uh, three verses of our, of our passage there. Hebrews chapter 1. First, Christ is the great prophet. That's the first thing that comes up there in verse 1. In verse, or I'm, I'm sorry, in verse 2 in particular. Christ is the great prophet. And what does that mean? That means he is the one who reveals God perfectly. He reveals God, the truth of God, perfectly. So we read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So that means there used to be a way, a certain way that God communicated his truth to uh, his people. And that was primarily through the prophets of old. And note, there's nothing wrong with that form of communication. There was nothing defective about this form of communication. It's simply that a better mode of communication now has come in Jesus Christ. Instead of sending a delegate to represent his law and even to represent himself, God now sends his son. And and who would know God better? A lawyer, an ambassador, a delegate, or his son? God sends the Son into the world as his perfect representative, not only in, in what he says, but, but in what he does, in, in who he is, in every aspect of his being. Jesus perfectly represents the Father to us. He not only bears the Father's message, but we even see here in this passage, he bears the Father's image, right? Verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Just to look at him, you don't even need to listen to him. I mean, you do need to listen to him, but not only in listening to him, even just in looking at him, you are receiving perfect revelation of the true nature of God. You remember what Jesus told Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You look to me and you see God. Now, again, there is nothing wrong with the prior prophetic mode of communication, it's just that the message wasn't complete until Christ. So it's a better mode, but now it's also a, a complete message. Uh, Michael Kruger suggests that without Christ, it would be like going to a play, uh, a, a, a three-act play, let's say, and you leave, or, or the play ends after the second act. Um, that would be pretty frustrating, um, You would be upset, but the reason you would be upset isn't because the first and the second acts were bad. It's just because they weren't complete without that final act. And so that's the same idea. It's not that the prophets of old were bad. There's anything wrong with it. It's just the message isn't complete. It's not full until the coming of Jesus Christ. Yes, in his ministry, in his teaching, certainly. But just even in arriving and taking on flesh, he is still the exact imprint of the image of God. The exact imprint of his nature. It all culminates in Christ. You want to know God, you need Christ. And so at Christmas time, we we look in the manger, as it were, and we see a baby who cannot even form words, who can only babble, and who can only coo. And yet, even before he can speak, 
He speaks for God better than any prophet had ever done before. Did you get that? Even before he speaks, he speaks better for God than any prophet had before. Why? Because to look at him, you say, this is God of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He's the great prophet who reveals the truth of God perfectly. Next, we see he's the mighty king as well. The mighty king, he rules the world ultimately. As the great prophet, he reveals God perfectly. As the mighty king, he rules the world ultimately. Where do we see that in our passage? Three places we see that he rules the world ultimately. First, with this language, in verse 2, that God appointed him to be the heir of all things. The whole world belongs to Jesus. He's in charge of it. He's its king. Second, though, he is the one through whom God created the world. The end of verse 2. He made it. If Christ made the world, he owns it. And then, thirdly, he, in verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's just another way of saying Jesus is in control. And why is he in control? Because he is the mighty king who rules the world ultimately. Uh, next, then, the author of Hebrews says Jesus is the high priest. The great prophet, the mighty king, and the high priest. And as the high priest, he is the one who has dealt with sin finally. Finally. Look at verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, we, we studied the book of Exodus a couple years ago. And, and if you know that book, you'll, you'll know that it gives extensive detail for the construction of the tabernacle, and in particular, the furniture that goes into the tabernacle, what things need to be built that should be placed in the tabernacle um, while the priests are ministering the sacrifices for Israel. But it's interesting. You'll never find any, as you skew the book of Exodus there, uh, it gives the instructions twice over. You'll never find any instructions for building and placing a chair inside the tabernacle. Why? Well, there was never an opportunity for the priests to take a rest, for them to sit down. What with all the perpetual sin coming out of the camp of Israel because their hearts are so wicked with the rest of humanity. The priests never sat down. They didn't have a chance to. But yet Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. His purification for sin is, pure, is perfect. It deals with sin entirely. His atonement is ultimate. He deals with the issue, the main issue between God and man, the main issue between us and, and, and our creator, isn't that we don't see eye to eye on certain things, or he wants us to do things we don't want to do. It's our sin. That's what alienates us from God. And Christ has dealt with that once and for all. And since it's finished, since it's dealt with, he sits down. His work is done. And so he ascends into the heavens and he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And when he does that, he is enthroned not just as a king, but as this great priest king. That's who he is. This is where the author of Hebrews starts by asserting that the supremacy of Jesus. He is the greatest because of who he is. The, the great prophet who reveals God perfectly. The mighty king who rules the world ultimately, and the high priest who has dealt with sin finally. But there's more that the author can po point to. Beyond arguing from who he is, he makes an argument, secondly, from what he has. That's the second thing. First, who he is. We saw that in the first three verses. Now, what he has. And that's in verse 4. 
Look at verse 4. It says that Jesus is much superior to angels. Why? Because the name he has, the name that he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs, their name. So what does he have? He has an excellent name. He has uh, the most excellent name. He has the name that is above every name, Philippians 2.9. And our question is, what is that name? Hold on to that for a second. Because first, we want to note that in talking about this name, the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to the angels. He's more ex- the name is more excellent than the name they have. And that kind of seems, at least when I read it, um, that kind of comes out of nowhere. Why are we talking about angels all of a sudden? And it's almost like a fascination for the author of Hebrews. He is talking about angels the rest of this chapter. We're going to talk about angels a lot this Christmas season. That seems somewhat appropriate. We like angels at Christmas time. Well, the author of Hebrews really wants to talk about angels and to continually assert that Jesus is better than angels. Let's be honest. Our hearts are drawn to love things more than Jesus every day. There is something that we want more than Christ. There are probably many things we want more than Christ. If I had to take a guess, though, I can't look into your heart. I don't know. But my guess is that for none of us, that thing we want more than Christ is angels. It just doesn't seem... What's the temptation here? Why are we talking about this? Well, remember the context. He's writing to people who are steeped in Jewish tradition, Hebrew background. And we can understand better this angelic obsession if we remember, actually, Hebrews 2. If you're open there in the Bibles, you see it. It's in chapter 2, verse 2 says the message, and it's talking about the Old Covenant, declared by angels, proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received just retribution. But the point there is uh, in Acts chapter 753, you can look up later, also underscores this, Acts 753, Hebrews 2, 2, Acts 753, teach us that the belief was that the Old Covenant was handed down from God. We're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, Sinai, right? This is what they were all about, the Mosaic Law. The belief was that angels, and we don't have any, it's not like it was a wrong belief, we, we should agree with this, that angels mediated that from heaven. They brought down what we know as the Mosaic Law from heaven to Mount Sinai. And so, as any good Jew should have a high esteem for Moses and the Old Covenant, uh, with that came a high esteem for the messengers of the Old Covenant, namely these angels. So they're really into angels, but angels aren't all that. They had a lot. They had glory. They have holiness. They have power. But there's something that they, have, they don't have that Jesus does, and that is this name. So what is the name? What is this excellent name that he has inherited? The name is this, Son of God. That's the name. Here is where the author of Hebrews, though, kind of turns the mic over and says, but don't take it from me. Don't take it from me. Take it from God himself. Listen to what God has to say about it. And that's why the remainder of this chapter is him quoting Old Testament passages that show us what God has to say about his son. Beginning in verse 5 with two quotations. The first from Psalm 2. The second from 2 Samuel 7. That prove that God has given the name son to Jesus. The name son. The first, as I mentioned, Psalm 2. The second, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. That's 2 Samuel 7. Those 
passages themselves are related because scholars believe that Psalm 2 is alluding to 2 Samuel 7. So Psalm 2, today you're my son, you are my son, today I've begotten you, is alluding to the event in 2 Samuel 7. That's a famous Old Testament scene where God enters into a covenant with David and his descendants, and he promises him the kingship of Israel, and he also tells him what kind of relationship that would entail. It would be like a son to a father. That's the kind of relationship the king of Israel would have with God, with Yahweh. And... And it seems that in rejoicing in that truth, the king himself, maybe even David, penned Psalm 2. In that psalm, as we read earlier, he counters his fears that the enemies of the Lord are going to join forces to try to overthrow him and and his rule. He counters that with this knowledge. Oh, they can do whatever they want to me, but I hold on to this. God has told me I'm his son. I'm his son. What harm could come to the king with that heart-cheering word from the Lord? But now, Hebrews tells us that this was ultimately God speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, that might seem a little puzzling at first because it seems to imply that there is a time when Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Um, What day did God begat him exactly today you today i've begotten you you're my son today is there a time was there a day when he was not his son well no we know what john tells us right in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god we rightly affirm that he is the eternally begotten son of god nothing changed uh his relationship to god even at the incarnation j.i packer writing His famous book, Knowing God, explains that the relationship between the second person uh, of the Trinity to the Father, quote, while he was on earth, was not a new relationship occasioned by the incarnation, but the continuation in time of the eternal relationship between Son and the Father in heaven, as in heaven, now on earth. Nothing changed, though. Father-Son relationship has been maintained. So God giving the name Son of God does not make him the son of God. What does it mean then? It means this, that God is publicly announcing, publicly declaring that that Jesus, before the entire world, he's letting him know Jesus is who he has always been. He is the son of God. This one is the son of God. He always has been and he always will be. And the scripture makes it clear to us that this moment of public vindication, a public declaration is nothing less than the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 13 with me. You'll see that. Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33. Turn there. This is Paul preaching. Acts 13, 32, Paul says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. How did he fulfill the second psalm? By, rise, by raising Jesus. Paul brings this up again now in Romans 1. Look at Romans 1, the very first sentence there. Of Romans chapter 1. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, this is chapter 1, verse 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, here it is, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's when he's declared to be, that's not when he becomes the son of God, that's not when he's adopted, that's when he's declared before the whole watching world. One more place that this comes up, at least, uh, is Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. We've already said that the name that Jesus has, that excellent name, is the name Son of God. When does he get it? Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. Familiar passage. Therefore, after he's humbled himself to the point of death, then it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. That is resurrection ascension language. He has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What's the name? The name is Son of God. He was always the Son of God, but it's in that exaltation that that name is publicly bestowed upon Christ. So what does this all mean? It means that for many people, the entire life of Jesus was actually gigantic proof that he was not what he claimed to be. Think about it. Think about what the skeptic would have thought. Uh, No, he's not the the Lord of glory. He's a liar. He's a, a, a lunatic. Because why? He's born in a tiny, obscure town of Bethlehem. He's kept in a feeding trough of all places. That doesn't sound like son of God to me. We just sang thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts instead for a stable floor. There's nothing of God in that. Well, then he grows up in the poverty of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He's a carpenter's son. And undoubtedly there were people who continued to spread rumors that he wasn't even that, right? That his mother was, was a harlot and Joseph wasn't even his real dad. They, they remember the stories of her pregnancy and all the mystery surrounding that. And so if they wanted to, there was plenty that people could point to in the life of Jesus that would seem to shut down his claim to divinity, that he was the son of God. Except for one thing. He rose again from the dead. Except for that. And that's the whole point. The Son of God, born as a man, born to die so that he can be raised from the dead, defeating death, and be seen to be what he has always been. The Son of God. Now it's irrefutable. Now it's undeniable. The resurrection's not the moment where God decided to give this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, you know... um, a pass on death because he lived such an exemplary life where he says, you know, all right, why, why don't you come on up out of the grave and, and live with me in heaven because you're such a good guy? No, the resurrection is not when God decided to make Jesus his son. It's the proof that he has always been his son. At the resurrection, God is saying, today I have begotten you, meaning, you know, he's saying they could not have known it from all eternity and they refused to believe it at the incarnation, but today nobody can deny All the world will see today, you are my son. That you have this excellent name. That you share in the divine name. The I am what I am. The eternal God who knows nothing of death. And so then the question in verse, back to Hebrews 1. The question of verse 5. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or which of the angels did God ever say, I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son? Translation, which of the angels did God ever raise up from the dead? It's a rhetorical question, and you know the answer. None of them. None of them. But here's what's really astounding, and I hope you're all listening for this. That name which God would never dream of bestowing upon an angel, that name which belongs by right to Christ Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God of God, that name that belongs to him, that God would never give to an angel, God by grace is willing to give to you and me. What? What? Did you know that? Did you know that we can share in that name that is above every name? We too can be sons of God. That's the point of Christmas. And it's so perfectly captured in that line from mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says that the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you share what is rightfully his. He is the son of God by right, by nature. We can be sons of God by grace, by adoption. This is why he came. He came to receive that declaration from God. You are my son. Let the whole world know it. He came to receive that title and then to share it. With all of the privileges and the blessings, he came to give that to you and me. This is what he says to the Father in John 17, 26. You know, the high priestly prayer. This is how it concludes. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love which you've loved me may be in them, and I in them. He wants to bring us into this father-son relationship. We're talking about how Hebrews 1 is how much the Father loves the Son. This is showing us what the Father thinks of the Son. And Jesus says, I came into the world so that they could share the love that you have for me. I want them to know that same kind of love. What a God we have. What a gospel we proclaim. That he came to bring us into this father-son relationship. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. No angel was ever raised from the dead because no angel is the son of God. But Jesus was raised from the dead and you will be too if you believe. Because when you believe, you are no longer just a son of Adam or daughter of Eve. You are a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this is what God does for his son. He doesn't let him stay dead. This is what he'll do for you if you are in the sun. He won't let you stay in the grave either. To which of the angels did he ever say, let me raise you up? None of them. What about which of the humans? Which of our race? Well, he says it to all who hold on to Christ. You have this same privilege. And so what Hebrews 1 wants from us is to share the same view of Jesus that the Father has. We are to look up to the Son. We're to, we're to look beyond the manger and the poverty and the humiliation. We're, we're to see him as the highly exalted one, as the one raised to the new creation, as the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the one who rules the world and upholds all things by the word of his power. 
And when we look up to Christ and when we get that high estimation, that high view of Jesus, when you see him as truly the one and only, the brightest, the best, the greatest, when you see him as the supreme savior, the one who is equal to the father, when you look up with the eye of faith and you see Jesus the way the father sees Jesus, you know, something amazing happens. When you look up and see Jesus that way, God looks down to you and he says, come on up with him. Come on up with him. This is how Revelation 26 puts it. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in his resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they'll reign with him. Come on up with him. Be a priest with him. Be a king with him. And the second death, we call that judgment. Eternal judgment. Will have no power over you. Why? Why? Well, because he was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. It is our second birth that defeats the fear of the second death. And so, beloved, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Believe that Indeed, light and life to all he brings. Believe that he's risen with healing in his wings. And guess what? You will be raised too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus Christ and all that he is. We thank you for what he has, that name that is above every name. And we thank you for the gospel which tells us we can have it too. We are awed by this. We lack the words to express our gratitude and our thanksgiving, that you would not leave us in the dust, not leave us to death, but that you would let us share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and indeed this Christmas season. We thank you for a Savior who was born to die and who died to be raised again. We look to him and we pray this in his name. Amen.